All right. Hey, welcome to Rockbridge Community Church, uh, wherever you're tuned in. We're one church in multiple physical locations. We're one church in multiple languages. And uh, we've also got uh, thousands of you who watch and engage online at our online experience, Facebook, YouTube, or our church online platform via our website. So however you're engaged, one, we're glad you're here. And two, we want you to believe that you're here, not by accident, that God literally wants to do something in your life, wants to speak truth, give hope to you. And so just believe that, and, and I'm expecting that for us and for you. Hey, t- a couple of quick things before we dive into, into bottom line, the current message series. First is this coming Wednesday is First Wednesday. It's when we take the Lord's Supper together, and we really come together to just pray for one another, pray for our cities, pray for the nation, pray for God's favor to be upon us, and, and that we walk in faithfulness to Him. So that's First Wednesday, all six of our physical locations, as well as online. And then this weekend is one of our big uh, student ministry events, which we call Disciple Now or D-Now, and the theme is the darkness and the light. And and, and it's so powerful, that theme, because it ties in to this series that we're in called The Bottom Line. And the bottom line for the Christian is that we are to love others as God himself through his son Jesus and his spirit, as God himself has loved us. And that that love actually has the capacity to shine light into darkness in the world. That God wants to love people through you. And we said that's really one of our highest callings as a church. Our highest callings as Christ followers is that, hey, I get to share and give the love of Jesus. And that's sometimes different than Hollywood, Hallmark, and maybe the love you've received. But we get to give the love of Jesus to other people. And in doing so, the the light penetrates the darkness that's in this world. And so what we've invited God to do through this series in way of review is we've just said, hey, Jesus, would I want to be your student. I want to be your disciple in the area of love. You've asked God maybe to help you know who to marry. You've asked God to help you make a decision about maybe your career or where to go, or where to live. But has, have any of us just said, hey, Jesus, I need to be your student in the area of love. But because here's what I know. We've all been taught by someone or by something how to love or how to do love. And what we're having to unlearn is maybe the way we were taught love is not the way Jesus does love, and we're trying to learn to love as Jesus has loved us. And so our our instructive passage uh, of Scripture that we're hanging out in this entire series, we're in one passage this entire series, it's 1 Corinthians 13. And today we're going to look at a narrow slice of that incredible chapter about love that you've heard at weddings or different places, but we're looking at it because it was written to a church. It wasn't written for a wedding ceremony, it was written for a church. And we're looking at a narrow slice today. And here's what we're going to discover. We're going to discover this, that what I rejoice in, take pleasure in, have ha- get happy about regarding others says something about how I love others. All right, now that, uh, that's going to make sense in just a minute. But what, when, I, when I look at other people, when I think about other people, and when I have joy at, at something going on in them, around them, that says something about how I love them. 
Okay, so just what I take joy in regarding other people says something about how I love others. And let's see that in the text, and let's, let's read the meat of this text, 1 Corinthians 13. We'll start in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. That's what we talked about last week. Love does not envy or does not have jealousy, is not boastful or self-seeking, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking. Love is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. And then we're going to look at this, this main sentence right here this week. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, no joy in bad things happening, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never, never ends. So we're specifically looking at something love does not do, which is take joy in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. And so Paul's going to help us understand that. There's three negatives to look at in relation to what we find joy in. Like love does not envy means that when someone else has something you don't have, you, you're not to envy that or desire that. And, and then you kind of get secretly excited about it when they don't have it anymore, right? That's a way of understanding what Paul's talking about. When he says, you know, love is not arrogant or not self-seeking, that if I put myself in the center and when something good happens to you that sort of kind of threatens me being at the center, then I see you in conflict with me or in competition with me, and, I'm ta- and so I can't truly love you, right? That I have no joy when something good happens to you because really I've got myself in the center of my little world. So he's talking about that. And then he says, love does not keep a record of wrongs because if I ever get in the habit of wrong keeping or score keeping between me and another human being, then I will be tempted to, to compete with them, to conflict with them, and, or either to get even with them or to get ahead of them, all of which means I cannot take joy in what's happening to someone that might be good. I can take joy when something bad happens to them. Now, the, the, the key to unlocking this little phrase in 1 Corinthians 13 is that Paul does something that we shouldn't expect. He actually pairs unrighteousness, or evil might be another word, with truth. And the questions that we should ask are, well, why does he not pair good and evil? Why does he pair evil and truth? And we're going to see why he does that in a minute. Why does he not, why, and then why does he not pair truth with falsehood? But instead, he, he, he pairs truth with evil. And so what we need to awaken ourselves to, we're just looking at this high level for just a minute, is there such a thing as, bad, as a bad joy reaction to other people? A bad joy. Now, now, let me say this. In our culture, currently, if something makes you happy, doesn't matter what it is, if something makes you happy, our culture says, well, that thing's okay. If it makes me happy, it's good. And what we're seeing in this text, though, if I get happy at something that is unrighteous about another or for another, then it's not love and it's not good. Right? Now, let me give you an example. Okay, and there's so many examples. We can talk about athletics, right? You ever had, you know, your, your team is playing another team and their star player goes down hurt in the first period, and you're like, man, I hope he's okay after the game, right? <laughs> that's that's, that's kind of like bad joy, right? Let's talk about it politically. I don't know if you remember this, right? But there was a time President Trump was speaking at West Point, the military academy, and he was walking off the stage, and he stumbled and had to grab a handrail. 
blew up on certain news channels. Like, oh, the president's lost it, right? And, and people were excited about it. Some people, half, one half of the country, was excited about it. Now that we have a president from the other party, whenever he like fumbles a word in a speech, then the other party like, look at Biden, he's losing it. And we're sort of excited about it for each other, right? Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. Maybe your sister-in-law wears a size two. And she gets pregnant, and you're hoping she can't lose her baby weight, right? <laughs> There's bad joy, right? There's bad joy in reaction to, in some of you that hit too, much, too close to home. I mean, th think, think about it in regards to COVID. Like, people get sick, and we're like, oh, they weren't wearing a mask, right? And, and they're, I, I told you so. Or, hey, have you got vaccinated? And if something bad happens and you got vaccinated, well, I told you, it doesn't work. I mean, and we just, just start labeling that and having joy when other people experience hardship or challenge because of the way maybe we're looking at other people. You ever said this? Well, they had it coming. Well, she got what she deserved. When Paul says, Love has no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. He's saying love does not celebrate the shortcomings, the setbacks, the sinfulness of anybody. And remember, anybody is not just the people you find it easy to love, but it's also your enemies. It's also the sinner in your life. It's also the people you don't agree with, you don't see eye to eye with. Remember, this passage was not just written for two couples who were giving their lives together to each other in marriage. This passage was written for people in the church, people in the world, to love as Jesus loved. And so when we look at it that way, we begin to get some takeaways that we can apply in our lives. And, and, and one of those takeaways, the first one is this, love that we are called and being sanctified to do, because remember, love is a verb. You don't fall into love, you do love, it's action. Love that we're called, that's our calling, right? Our calling, Disciple Now Weekend, our calling is to be salt and light into darkness, to penetrate that with the love of Jesus, the love of God. So the love that we're called and being sanctified, sanctified means we're being changed by God to do something that we can't do without God, which is to love the way he's loved us. So the love that we're called and being sanctified to do never celebrates the shortcomings or the failings of others. Love does not rejoice. That's the way Paul said it. Love does not rejoice in the shortcomings and the failings of others. It takes no joy in that. It takes no joy. There's no secret applause. We're not secretly having a party in our brain when someone that maybe we don't see eye to eye with or someone we do see eye to eye with suffers, has a setback, falls into sin, quote, gets what they had coming, you know, you know whatever. We don't celebrate that. Now, let me pause for a second, okay? Because there's a frequent... There's a frequent dilemma that a lot of people have when, when we talk about the love of God, we talk about the love of the Bible, then a frequent dilemma that some people have and, and gets brought up, in fact, it was brought up to me just, uh, just this, this week, is, well, what about the Old Testament and violence and warfare? That doesn't seem very loving. 
And, and, and then some, because we see violence and warfare and death and bloodshed very prevalently in the Old Testament, sometimes Christians in a spirit of godliness, in a spirit of maybe righteousness, but it might border on self-righteousness, we sort of think, hey, it's okay when the people that are, are sinning really bad suffer, or it's okay to go in this direction. So, so what I'm going to try to do just for a second is give us a, a a handlebar, if you will, for understanding this dynamic. Because again, I can be in a conversation with someone talking about 1 Corinthians 13, talking about the love of God, and, and inevitably one out of three, one out of four conversations, somebody says, well, help me with the Old Testament then, Matt. So let me help us with the Old Testament, okay? So the first thing we have to understand is we got to recognize God's sovereignty and God's authority. That, that God is in charge and God has authority, and because he created us, he has authority over life, and he has authority over death. And, and, and so whether death occurs by natural causes, or death occurs through warfare, or death occurs through a disease, God is still sovereign, and God still has authority. Now, I, that, if I just gave you that one answer, it would feel a little anemic. So you can't just take that answer and go with it, although that answer is sufficient, and that answer is true. And when it comes to things of life and death, do I want to trust my judgment, my wisdom, in my, in, in my finite understanding, or do I want to touch, 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 trust God's? So then we have to understand God's omniscience and God's wisdom. Much of the violence that we see in the Old Testament, it, God predicted would be necessary, if you will. In Genesis 15, 6, 15, 6 he says, hey, I'm going to give Israel the land because the sins of the Amorites have not reached their full measure. 400 years later, we begin this warfare to retake or to reclaim the promised land. So when God in his omniscience is seeing that this group of people is never going to get better, this group of people is going to continue to sin, and their sins were not, you know, a white lie here and there. I mean, they, they, they killed babies, they practiced violent tactics of war and things of that nature. So God is using his omniscience and his wisdom, and we need to be careful about thinking that our wisdom in a situation in a world full of sin and brokenness is better than God's. And, and, and I can parallel it to a couple of things. I, in World War II, Jewish leaders came to Franklin Roosevelt and said, hey, would you order the American Air Force, the Army Air Corps to bomb the concentration camps to end the suffering? Now, I can't fathom having to give or not give that kind of decision. But that's the complication that sin creates, right? Go a little bit further in World War II. President Truman becomes president. 11 weeks later, he makes the decision to drop two atomic bombs on the nation of Japan. And, and the world today debates that decision. But if you're the president and you've been showing data that a mainland invasion of Japan could cost 100,000 American lives and probably five, 10 times as many Japanese lives and that actually dropping the most heinous weapon ever developed could actually save lives. What do you do? And, and, and I, I'm just sort of thinking, man, God's, we just got to believe God's wiser than Roosevelt and Truman. And God's wiser than any person that occupies the White House. God's wiser than you and I, but his wisdom has to play out in a world that we broke. And, and so I can't question his love because of that. How many of you are like Marvel and Avenger fans, right? Remember Doctor Strange when he looked in the time stone and he sees 14 million scenarios and he says there's only one way we can defeat Thanos. 
and he gives him the time stone. Remember that? Imagine, imagine God in his omniscience and wisdom sees millions, billions of different choices of different things, but he's going to all work it out in love. And, he'll, and his glory and his purposes will stand. Thirdly, when we look at Old Testament and God's love, we have to understand the uniqueness of Israel as a nation in the history of God versus the church. The church is not Israel. Israel was a nation, a military, political, ethnic, and spiritual nation. The church is not a political entity. We're called to spread the gospel. And we're even called to die to spread the gospel in the name of love. All right, so you have to understand that distinction. And then finally, I would also say the most violent event in the Bible is not in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's the cross. And where is the actual place that the love of God was most clearly demonstrated and that the spirit of God pours into our hearts by faith? It's at the cross. So somehow this omniscient, wise God who created free creatures and we have the capacity to make decisions and we're responsible for those decisions and we made decisions where we rebelled against God and we rebelled against his wisdom. We rebelled against his goodness. We rebelled against his authority. We rebelled against his sovereignty. And somehow in his infinite display of mercy and grace on the violence of the cross, that's the place I go to know where God loves me most, best, and forever. So all of that to say, do not let the events in the history of the Old Testament cause you to lose or doubt the goodness or the love or the wisdom of God. So, remember, first point that we said, right? Love is never going to celebrate the shortcomings of others. Second point, love, the way we're called and being changed to do, sanctified to do, goes all the way. Goes all the way. It goes all the way to the way of truth. Remember what Paul said, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices, actually rejoices in the truth. Here's why that's important, okay? Most of the love that's being talked about in the world today has no objective grounding. It's very subjective. It's based upon, like, like you can tell me something and I can say that's the most unloving thing in the world when maybe it's not because love is being allowed to be defined on personal terms. Like love just lets you do what you need to do or be who you want to be or go where you want to go or do what you want to do. I know if I use that with my kids that I'd be one of the most unloving parents there are, right? So when we say Love goes all the way. What Paul is saying, and it's the way of truth, he's grounding love. He says, listen, what, the, what we've got to rejoice in and what we've got to look for and what we've got to love people toward is the truth of God, the truth about God, the truth of the gospel and how the violence of the cross is actually a demonstration of the incredible, steadfast, eternal love of God. That God was using all that stuff in the Old Testament to bring his son to a cross to die for me, but not just for me, instead of me. That's a big difference. It's a big difference. Just for me and instead of me. And so when God says, hey, I want us to rejoice in the truth, he's calling us to rejoice in evidences of his grace and his truth being grasped, being learned, being cherished for people. So here's the challenge, right? Here's the challenge. 
Some of us can love people in our lives, but the love stops short of going all the way to the truth. Like we can celebrate and love that you got the promotion and that you got the new car and that you got a date to the prom. And that's good and that's all fine. But what we need to love and celebrate the most is when we are grasping and being grasped by the truth of who God is and what God has done when he died for us, when he gave his son for us, when he put us in the church. I keep in in an area in my office where I pray, I keep a prayer request. Here it is. It's on one of the cards and it's from uh, 2013. And I keep it for several reasons. Because, and I, I can't really, even though it was like nine years ago, I, just, I can't share the details. But this is a prayer request that I can't pray what was asked. Because if I prayed for what was asked, I would be one of the most unloving pastors in the world. Now, I, I don't find fault in this person because there's a deception going on. And, and I know who's the deceiver in the world. And, 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 and we call him Satan. And so I have this prayer request that, I've, that I keep to remind me that I've got to love people all the way. And, and sometimes how people ask to be prayed for, how people ask to be loved, doesn't go all the way to the truth of the gospel, the truth of who God is. I keep this prayer request for a second reason. And this person's actually, when it was submitted, was a teenager. Like the teenagers participating in Disciple Now this weekend. I keep this also to remind me that we've got to ask God to do things in us and through us that only he can do. Only God, through his spirit, can truly show us the depth of the love that he has for us as proven on the cross of Christ. And only God working in me can empower me to love people the way he loved me and to go all the way in how I love my wife, how I love my kids, how I love my enemies, how I love lost people, how I love overlooked people, how I love the least of these. So that's why I keep this prayer request from 2013. Now there's a third thing that we learn from Paul in this dance about truth, this dance about rejoicing in the truth. And that's this. Love finds and expresses its greatest joy, holy joy. Remember we said there was bad joy? Bad joy to your sister-in-law that wears a size two. Bad joy when your enemy stumbles or falls. Bad joy, right? Envious joy, self-seeking joy. Bad joy, but this is holy joy. When sinners... And the truth, the truth of God, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. When sinners start to intermingle and dance and develop and deepen into the truth. That I get excited. I get excited when I see people awaken to the truth of God. That when, when I see, you know, a teenager reading their Bible on their own, I get fired up and I have holy joy. I rejoice in the truth. I rejoice in righteousness, right? I get excited when people that haven't been in church for a long time start coming to the church because why? We're going all the way. We're getting excited about that. 
We're getting passionate about that. We're having joy about that. Because in that passage, Paul uses two little Greek words, two different Greek words for joy. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. And that rejoices in the truth is, is, a, is, a, is a different Greek word, and it's a higher form of joy. And, and so we, we got to ask ourselves, you know, what am I taking joy in in other people? We've already talked about bad joy. And, and, and there's better joy. You got the promotion. You got the job. You got into college. You know, you know you, the, a lot of people, you know, are excited that you, you, got, you, you got that house or you got that new set of golf clubs, et cetera. You got a hole in one. That's, that's okay. But there's greatest, the greatest joy. And I, I just want to ask us, <coughs> excuse me, in a, in a spirit of self-reflection, do you get more excited about your team winning the national championship, dogs? Or do you get more excited about your son or daughter being in church? Do you get more excited about getting a raise or about getting in God's word? Do you get more excited about everything going your way in your work day or actually walking in the way of Jesus every day. And I think if we're all honest, we would all say, God, I might need to repent of something this weekend. Maybe, maybe, maybe my joy is bad joy. I'm jealous, I'm envious. I kind of quietly applaud when my enemies stumble, fail, fall short, get what they had coming. Or, or maybe, 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 maybe your love is limited and you just stop it here at better joy. You know, you get excited over good things happening to people, good things of people in your life. But let's go to the greatest joy. Let's go to the greatest joy. We rejoice when people are interacting with the truth of God, the truth of the gospel, the truth of his word. In fact, Jesus, in an incredible story, said it this way. He said, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 people who don't need to repent. That means when anybody gives their steering wheel of their life to Jesus Christ, gives their sins to Christ, when anybody repents of a sin, there's more joy in heaven. So, so God, listen, God is not applauding when a sinner fails, when a sinner experiences a consequence. God's not happy with that. God's happy when a sinner comes home. God's happy when a sinner comes back to him and says, God, I, I don't want to call you God anymore. I want to call you Father. God's happy when, when you decide, I'm going to start fighting the sin in my life. God's happy when sinners interact with his truth of who he is and what he's done. <clears throat> so, just to summarize, there's bad joy. When the source of our joy is wrong, when I'm rejoicing when someone gets what they had coming, as if I'm qualified to say what anybody's got coming, 
When the source of joy is, is jealousy and, oh, now they're losing what they had that I was jealous of. The source of joy could be wrong, and that's unloving. But another bad joy is when the length of my joy is limited, when I'm not loving people all the way to want to rejoice at their interactions with the truth of God, the truth of the gospel, the truth of his word, the joy of them discovering or deepening themselves into the love of God that's in Christ. All right, so we've got to do something with this, right? We, we, we've kind of learned and discerned there's good joy, there's bad joy, and there's, great, great, there's greater, better joy when it comes to our response to what's going on in other people's lives, what they're doing, what they're not doing. So how do we grow this? How, how do we practice this? How do we walk out of here this weekend and, and, and be a student of Jesus and put this into practice? Here, here's a few thoughts, a few suggestions. The first one is this. We need to rehearse and retell our own story. And what I mean by your story is I mean this, the story of when God saved you, when God adopted you, when you woke up and you realized that that was Jesus hanging there for you and instead of you. We don't ever need to forget that. When we take the Lord's Supper at first Wednesday, we need to, God, you saved me. You rescued me back when I was eight years old or 18 years old or 42 years old. And we need to never get over our own salvation. It's like some of us, we get saved and then we get self-righteous. And we're so good at pointing out what's wrong with other people. We should, that, we should be the most humble people on the planet when we realize what it took to save us. And, and I, want us all, I, want you to, I want you to think about something, okay? There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents the 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. At one point, if you have a story of B.C. to A.D., of you before Christ, you after Christ, if you have a story of redemption, at one point there was a party in heaven because of you. Never get over that. Now, as I'm talking, some of you may be saying, Matt, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I have a story. I don't know if there's a time I've ever... Now that you're talking, I mean, I think God's talking to me, Matt, and I, I, I don't know that I've ever maybe been saved. Then quit listening to me. Listen to the Holy Spirit because God is inviting you to give your life to him. God is inviting you to quit calling him God and to call him Father. God wants to come and take residence in your life. So you look to Christ on the cross and you say, Jesus, it should have been me but it was you. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying to save me. Thank you for dying to adopt me. Thank you for dying to put your spirit in me. Just say yes to Christ. He said yes to you when he hung on that cross. And now you got a story. And as you're making that act of faith in your spirit, in your soul, in your mind, in your heart, that's going on in heaven because you've come home. Never get over it. Never get past it. Never. And what happens when we do that, it begins to change how we see other people. It begins to change how we view other people. It begins to change our highest hopes for other people, that we want other people to have this, to have what we have. And so we begin to change what we look for in others. You know, there's this old principle. If you look for it, you'll find it. Listen, if you come to church at Rockbridge and you come to find fault, 
you're going to leave not disappointed. If you get to know Matt Evans and you're looking for faults or looking for my, my flaws, my rough ed- edges, you will find it. The people you're sitting with, you will find it. If you go watch the news looking for something wrong in somebody else, you're going to find it. And there's people who get paid to tell you about other people's faults. That's not the way of the Christ follower. So because of we've rehearsed our own story, and some of you may have a story now, I want to ask them, what bothers you more, other people's sins and shortcomings or your own? For the Christ follower, what has to bother me more than, than the faults I might see in other people? I, I, I got to be more bothered by my own faults than other people's faults. So just change what you look for. And what you need to look for, what we need to look for is signs of the grace of God, the truth of God working in people's lives. <coughs> There's a theological concept called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. It's grace that comes before. Here's what that means. You're never going to see somebody that God's not trying to get their attention. Now, they may be hard, but God's grace is always present. What God wants to do through you and I, remember, darkness and light. We want to shine our light, Disciple Now Weekend, is we want to look, not for people's faults, because you'll always find them. We want to look for signs of God's grace. We want to look for signs of how God's working on someone, in someone, and through someone. And then we need to get really good. This is something our staff talks about. We want to get really good at doing this. It's called an I see in you conversation. And I, I just want you to imagine something. It's easy to see, I, I see what you did. I know you're not as good as you know. It's easy to do that. What, what if we got really good in our small groups, in our families, in our church, in our jobs, in our community? What if we got really good at I see in you conversations? And what we were saying to people is, hey, I see how God is working on you right now. I, I see how you're growing in your faith journey. I see how you're taking steps toward the greatest joy there is of knowing Jesus Christ. I want to help you take those steps. I see in you, I see this gift in you. I see this strength in you that, that God could use to bless people and bring glory to his name. And we just got so good at having these I see in you conversations. And we had a spirit of I see in you because we live in a world that wants to say, yeah, I see what you did. We live in a world that wants to put people on the stand and critique them and criticize them and find fault in them. And when the heat's on them, baby, it ain't on me. Praise the Lord, right? That's not the way of Jesus. That's not the love of Jesus. So what if we just got, just said, hey, I'm going to go and I want to have an I see in you conversation with somebody. I, I, I brought this. I dug this up today. My senior year in high school, two letters. I'll try not to get emotional. One from one of my small group leaders, like the dozens of small group leaders investing in, in kids' lives this weekend. And then one from a teacher and a coach. And these were I see in you letters to 17, 18-year-old Matt Evans. I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I don't think I would be where I am today. Had two people not taking the time just to say, Matt, here's what I see God doing in you right now. And let me say something to everybody here. You will never lock eyes with another human being that doesn't need an I see in you conversation 
from the spirit of love, the love of Christ. So I want to I ask you, you don't have to do it. Nobody's going to get mad at you next week if you don't do it, but you've got some homework. What if you sent a text, made a phone call, sent an email, went to visit someone, took someone to lunch, to dinner, after church, and said, hey, I, I, I want to say something I see God doing in your life. Maybe it's someone in God's forever family. Maybe it's one, somebody in, your, in our church, somebody in your small group. You just want to call them up and say, hey, I just want to tell you I see something in you and encourage you in the way of Jesus. Maybe it's a lost person. Maybe it's someone that, man, you've given up on them or they're in your life and you're sort of like, they're going to get what they deserve. Maybe you look at them differently tomorrow and you say, hey, I see this in you and I just want to encourage you. And I know you, maybe you don't know it, maybe you don't believe it. I just want to tell you Jesus loves you. And if I can ever talk to you about it, I'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe it's someone that, that you know, is in your life and you just know they get overlooked. They just sort of get forgotten about in the way of the world or the way of your company or the way of your team or the way of your class. And you just want to go to them and say, hey, I just want to see something in you. And what you're seeing in them is evidence of God's grace and truth working in them, on them, or through them. And the last thing I want to encourage us to do is this. I want everybody to remember something. How do people get saved? How do people get encouraged in the truth, get comforted by the truth, get challenged and corrected by the truth? Remember, rejoice in truth, truth of God, truth of God's word, truth of the gospel. How does that happen? How do people get saved? How do they get encouraged? How do they get comforted? How do they get challenged? How do they get corrected? Someone loves them enough to share something with them in love. If you're saved here this weekend, you're a Christian, somebody told you the message of Jesus. If you're in crisis and you got comforted in that crisis, it's because someone came to you, prayed over you, texted you, sent you a card, told you to hang in there, and they gave you the truth of God who never leaves you and loves you no matter what, right? If you've been ever going down the wrong road and someone loved you enough to grab you gently and restore you kindly because they loved you too much to let you go down and go off the cliff, how does God love the world? Through the church he created and the church that he teaches. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let's pray together. So God... I thank you for loving me. I thank you for the people that you've put into my path at providential moments. Youth workers, friends, family, strangers, who in the name of Jesus, in the name and the spirit of truth, have brought comfort, correction, encouragement, I see in you into my life. God, I pray that this church grows in our ability to love other people. The least, the overlooked, the lost, the left behind. People who might even, we might even want to 
call our enemy sinners, strangers. Let us grow in love. God, right now, may we all just remember when you saved us, who you used to save us, to bring us to a place of surrender at the foot of the cross. And we want to say thank you. God, for those that today, today is the beginning of their new life, their new story with you. We rejoice in, as you rejoice in heaven because there's more joy in heaven over one who repents. And God, I just want to pray that at the end of this series, at the end of this service, none of us is, is, is the same as when we came in because either we are being loved by you or we're being equipped to go give the love you've given us to the people in our lives. And all of that for your glory and your honor. In your name we pray. Amen.